Hey, Mountain. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to our Mountain Road campus. Glad you're here. My name's Ben. We're in the middle of Love Handles. Who's got Love Handles? Yep, you do. Some of you just went ahead and pointed to the person next to you. It's not what I had in mind. I was thinking you raised your own hand, but everyone's got them. We're using love handles as a way to kind of refer to the fact that we're imperfect people. And everybody we're in relationship with is imperfect as well, which makes relationships a real hoot sometimes. So we're finding out that God's Word has a ton to say about relationships and how to get a handle, how to get a grip on being in relationship with other imperfect people who also have love handles. We've talked about mothers and others. We've talked about uh, singles and dating. We've talked last week about the next generation. Today we're going to talk about marriage. Marriage. Here's a picture of a couple from a few years back. See if you can identify who that might be. Yeah. In a couple weeks, Carla and I will celebrate 25 years together. In a couple weeks, June 16th. Um, Underneath the white, there are some love handles there. Uh, in both of us, and, you know, it, it, as I think about marriage, 25 years, there are times when you, when I just think, you know what, this is so awesome. I've thought that at every interval, from the first day when we walked down the aisle to, um, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years in. So awesome. How can it be any better, God? You're amazing to think of this. Thank you for this woman. And there are other days when you think, man, how how come this is so hard? You know, uh, how did we get here? Uh, it's just this is difficult. And uh, kind of everything in between, you feel that and experience that um, because of the imperfections and the love handles around us, which reminds me, did you hear about the two antennae that got married? No? Oh, well, they got married. They met and they got married up on a roof. Very, very fancy. Uh, the ceremony wasn't much, but the reception was amazing. <laughs> so, okay, so I think uh, some of you don't even get what I'm talking about right now. You're like, I'm a guest here, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so... Um, it's not the wedding, it's not the ceremony, it's not the reception that matters. It's what happens after that couple in white walks down the aisle. What happens then that matters the most, yes? That's why we're considering marriage, because that's a question that some of you might have on your minds. Why are we talking about marriage? Because half of us here listening probably aren't married. But you know, let's think about it. This is really important stuff. One, um, a whole bunch of us are considering marriage. There are some singles who are open to marriage, would like to be married, are considering marriage. There are some young people that are thinking maybe someday I'll need to choose a mate. There, there are uh, you know, lots of people uh, who in today's culture are waiting later to get married. They're maybe kind of discouraged about marriage, fearful about marriage. So there's, there's a reason why I think we can talk about it because some are considering marriage. I would also say it's important because some are struggling in marriage. Uh, you know, maybe your marriage is best represented by this cake topper that you see on the screen right there. Maybe that is the cake topper you should have chosen because, uh, you know, you're just not communicating well or there's so much conflict going on. Maybe it's struggling isn't even the right word. Maybe your marriage is something more like would be described by the word suffering um, because there's just deep pain in your marriage. You know, um, my son Nathan drove to Boston on Friday for a summer internship he's doing with a church up there. And we sent him off. He's all excited about his trip. He headed out the door all excited, right? I forgot to warn him about the tolls. He kept texting in every toll. It's like, wow, Perryville. Wow, eight bucks, you know, everywhere he goes. And he, and he, and he, and he gets to New York City. He's, he's paid $26 and, and he's out of money. He's out of cash. He gets there. It's a $14 toll. And he's like, he hands $3 to the guy. He's like, you know, I don't know. You know, and the guy says, you'll be hearing from me. 
which I have a hunch means I'll be hearing from them because the car is registered in my name. But I, I think that's how marriage can be for a lot of people, where it can just be like, it's, it, 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 you start out on a journey with a lot of high hopes, but it exacts more from you. It demands a greater toll on you than you are prepared for, and you, you sometimes don't have what it, what it takes, and there can be great pain in that. And suffering. Some of you, maybe it's not so much painful as I would say, maybe some of us are just enduring a marriage. It's just sort of flat and mediocre and bland, sort of like maybe these two in the picture here. Uh, you know, apparently I've done something to upset you. Uh, you know, where your life is just a, a lifeless truce, no intimacy or passion or dreams to even enter the picture because you've just kind of given up hope. Marriage can be one of the loneliest places uh, to endure. And maybe some of us are recovering from a marriage that's ended. I suspect that's the truth for a lot of us. And maybe sometimes I've found people that sometimes who have had a divorce or had a difficulty in a marriage that has ended, sometimes they feel a kind of dim view of marriage themselves. They feel maybe a jaded kind of perspective of the opposite sex or they have a kind of, their, their story starts to dominate some of how they think. I just want to say very quickly to you, if that's you, can we just pick up from here and move forward? No one wants to lay a big guilt trip. You hate it. God hates it. It's not what you had planned that your marriage ended in divorce and maybe you've been made to feel like you could never fully be whole in a church again or that you're some kind of subpar Christian perpetually. And I just want to say, yes, it's part of your story if that's you. It's part of the love handles that you wished weren't there, but they are there. But can we just see what God would do in your life and that nothing is outside the reach of God's redemptive help? And I would just say turn your heart to Him if that's where you're coming from today. And I would say another reason we need to talk about this is uh, some of us are encouraging others in marriage because someone we really love or care about is struggling and we're, it's, our, it's our kids who are going through a rocky time in their, in their marriage or, or our parents or some dear friends or family members or something like that and we need some help and thoughtfulness about this. And then there's a probably few of us, I hope more than a few, who are maybe going through a period where you're like you're flourishing and thriving in your marriage. It's a fruitful, enjoyable season right now and you want to know how to keep it going and make it even better. Here's the thing. We need to go to God's Word on this because we're all being discipled by a culture that is telling us all kinds of garbage about what marriage is, what relationships are like, and what really matters in life. We're getting this constantly rammed down our throats. And a lot of it is in direct opposition to God's understanding and view of what the good life and the good marriage can be. So we just need to begin by saying, you know what? God invented marriage, right? God invented it. It's not some cave people that sat around a fire and thought it up in the Bronze Era or something like that. You know what? It's God's idea and He lays out very specific understandings for, for what it is, what it's not, how to think about it, how to go at it. And if we're smart, we'll listen and pay attention and enter into marriage on His terms because this is a God who not only invented it, but He invented us and He loves us and always has our best life and our best interests in mind. So scripture describes this, you know, the origins of, of humanity as God created male and female and it talks about how Adam wakes up from surgery after the woman is drawn out of him, Eve is there. And keep in mind now Adam's been looking at rhinos and pigs for a while and there standing before him is the first woman, beautiful, gorgeous, perfect, sinless, you know, standing there wearing nothing but a smile. 
And God says to Adam, Adam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cling to your wife so that the two of you would become one flesh. And Adam, I imagine, said something like, Okay, praise the Lord. I have no idea what you're talking about, but we'll figure something out. And we did. And this is, in essence, the origins also of marriage. Genesis 2 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One flesh, this sort of deep connection. I got a kick out of hearing about the, the minister's group where he had gathered a bunch of husbands together to try to help them become better uh, in their marriages and better husbands. And he was so impressed that one of the members of his church named Luigi was approaching his 50th wedding anniversary. So he said, Luigi, take a few minutes, share some insights about how you've managed to stay married to the same woman all those years. And Luigi said to the rest of the husbands, well, I uh, tried to treat her nice. You know, I give her the money, I uh, spend the money on her. I took her to Italy for our 25th anniversary. Wow, they were all very impressed that Luigi had taken his wife uh, to Italy for their 25th. And uh, he says, now please, Luigi, tell us, what are you planning to do for your 50th uh, wedding anniversary? And, and Luigi proudly replied, I'm going to go get her. <laughs> bring her home. <laughs> Come to think of it, my 25th is coming right up. So it, do, it does make you think, is there a way to do this where we can actually thrive in the same place and do it together and the answer the answer is yes that the the all of the sort of negative images about it's just better to be apart is is, is a lie that there is a fuller more beautiful expression a more beautiful satisfying and fulfilling way than is what is being sold to us a way that can lead to greater joy than what the world is promising. And that's God's beautiful, beautiful design. And if you are entering into this whole discussion before we get started with a bunch of guilt or a bunch of negativity because of past mistakes or you feel like you know, you're just not doing well in this area, I just want to remind you that nothing and no one is beyond the reach of God's redemptive arm and His ability to do something amazing in our lives. Your grime and my grime are not too great for God's glory, okay? God uses, He pulls people from the fringes of darkness and puts them in the center of His marvelous light all the time. So let's all start at the same imperfect place, grab hold of our love handles and see what God might want to do. Because here's the reality. Half of marriages today are ending in divorce. Statistically speaking, you get married this afternoon, you got a 50-50 shot of making it. The divorce rate is just as high among people who claim to be Christians as those who do not. In fact, the one group that has a lower rate of one one group that does have a lower rate of divorce would be those who identify as atheists. So there's something going on here that might need our attention. And in light of that and how many other marriages are struggling and how many others are saying it's not worth it, let's Let's go to God's Word. Let's see some things uh, that will help us. I want to give you two love handles to hold on to, to get a grip on, okay? I want to give you two things that will run counterintuitive to the culture around us, and they're so, so important, and these are true whether, whether you are um, you know, thriving or striving in your marriage, or whether you're contemplating it or recovering or helping someone else or just need to know what, it, what God's Word said. Let me just give you two things. Number one, let's start by talking about some of the priorities of marriage. Priority of marriage. You know what a priority is, right? A priority is simply a revelation of what is actually important to you, right? That's what a priority is. You don't decide if you have priorities or not. Everyone has them, and they are what is actually reflected by our actions. Gandhi said that. 
your, your priorities simply are, are always expressed in your actions. So you look at a person's life, you can see what their priorities are. And so what Scripture says, when it says, hey, you're going to leave everything else and you're going to cling now to this one, it's saying that the marriage relationship of all human relationships is supposed to be numero uno. No one else is to have that place of priority. So as we establish marriage in the center of our sort of world, this often is the problem I see when couples come, you know, it's like, well, what happened? Well, we had a fight, she ran home to mama. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Leave and cleave. Quit, quit running home to mama. What happened? Well, I don't know. He always gets mad and he's always hunting and you know, he's always fit. It's like, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The priority on the relationship is key. And you establish this one as their most prized possession, this marriage relationship. And make your spouse your most cherished friend and valued partner in life. And if work and the demands of your job or the kids, as precious as they are, friends or your health or making money or keeping it, or hobbies or anything takes precedence over marriage, you're going to have struggles. And in our marriage, the times when Carla has felt the most devalued or struggled, it's when she felt I wasn't valuing, reflecting by my schedule or other ways the place of our marriage and her specifically as number one. So it's to have a kind of vortex, a kind of power in your life. And it's so strong that, you know, this is what happens. And you all know this if you've been married. If you have this marriage established and it's strong and secure and, and sound, then you know what? It doesn't matter if the rest of your life is a mess. Sometimes you can go, you know, you can still, if your marriage is strong, enter into the day with strength and confidence because of that primary relationship. You can be broke. Your life can be like a bad country song, you know. Your, your tire on your truck blew up and your dog died and your tra- trailer burnt down. But you know what? If your marriage is strong, you still feel secure and you can handle it. By the same token, if everything's going great, sales are up, the boss loves you and your grass is green, but your marriage is a wreck. And none of the rest of it seems like it quite offsets that sickness you feel inside about that relationship because it's meant to be a primary, the primary, number one relationship. So this is why the Bible says, Wives, love and respect your husbands like no other. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's sacrifice. You don't sacrifice for anything that isn't a priority. So make it number one. Now, having said that, Here's what else we need to say about priorities in, in marriage. And that is that the goal in your life is not for you to focus on your spouse if you're married. It's not. The goal in your life is the same as the goal in life for someone who's not married. And you know what that is? It's to focus on God and to make your relationship with God numero uno, even above spouse. Sometimes I would say to some of you, especially above spouse. Everything else will fail if your foundational relationship with God is not in place. God doesn't want our relationship with our spouse to be first. He wants our relationship with Him to be first. Ahead of everything else and everyone else. Some of us have learned this the hard way. We have a relationship all around us that have struggled and failed because God, because the people in those relationships or you yourself are not plugged into God as your primary relationship. And guess what? Your rest of your relationships don't work either very well that way. I love, I love 1 John 1.7 that says, if we're, you and I, if we're living in the light of God's presence, 
well, then we have wonderful fellowship and joy with each other. That's a beautiful picture of a marriage. I love what Francis Chan says. He says most marriage problems aren't marriage problems. They're God problems. And I found that to be true as I've listened in my own life and the life of others. Most marriage problems are heart problems. They're problems. As, as two people will, eventually you say, oh, I see the problem here. And I just want to say, if you will focus on God, if you'll enrich your faith in God, if you will fear God, if you will be faithful to God, it will help everything else in your relationship go well. See, what happens is we get this void and this intimacy that rises up in our lives and we begin to, to latch on to other things and stuff them in there, right? So we long for the, the loneliness and, and, and the offsetness that we feel in our lives to be mended and so we pursue wealth or academic respect or we pleasure or fame or all these things. Sometimes we even put marriage in there. But it won't, it won't fulfill what we're meant to. Four, and that is a primary priority relationship with God through Jesus Christ who comes to us and says the best thing you could do is love me with all of your heart. The worst thing you could do would be to put your husband and wife first because that will place an impossible expectation on your marriage that only God is meant to fill. So don't love your spouse more than anything. Love God more than anything. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's hard to get a handle on, isn't it? Sounds, sounds wrong because we live in a culture that makes an idol out of family. We make an idol out of romantic love and marriage. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first a good-looking woman. Seek first a husband who flosses. No, it says seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're doing it wrong. You don't get it yet, he says. You don't, even, you don't really understand all that I am and can be for you. He says, if you want to be my disciple, he says, you'll have to, by comparison, hate your father and mother or your spouse or kid. It's like, what? He's saying, it's not that we're supposed to love Jesus a little more than our families. Our love for God is to be in a whole different category. The gap between our ordered affections is to be wide. So here's, like, here's often what we see pictured is a kind of hierarchy of our affections like this. With God at number one, if you're married, you put spouse at number two. You know, if you have other family, it goes here like that. And then we have other responsibilities like things like work and way down we have to remember not to love our stuff more than people and it comes like in an order like that, our possessions down at the bottom. And it's not bad. There's a sense to that. You put, you put your priorities of this way and get things ordered in that direction. But you know, this isn't really what Jesus teaches us. What he says about how to order your life, if you want the best life and the fullest life, looks more like this. That's what Jesus teaches. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and, and create a gap between your love for Him and others. And guess what? When you do that, all of these other relationships get blessed and infused with health and grace and more joy. Consider your heart right now and ask what your first love really is. Because I could give you ten practical tips about how to make your marriage better, how to get your friendships and your spouse and your work and your possessions in all the right order and all of that. But you know, the most important thing I could ever tell you is to take a step closer to God. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're single and you don't get this right, you're going to go looking for a spouse, I would just say, stop, go look for Jesus first. Get Jesus first. If you're in a marriage and you're hurting and you're lonely and you're sad, you're angry all the time or whatever, why why did God put me here and so forth, I would just say, set your heart and your deepest affections on the Lord and let Him be your portion in your everlasting love first. And out of that trust that He can bring something good. Let me show you what happens when two people make God their highest priority. Kind of looks like this. Sometimes we diagram it like this. This is God here. Here's hubby here. Here's Mrs. over here. And of course they have a relationship with each other which they hope to see come closer together over time. But here's what happens. When he devotes himself as a disciple of Jesus Christ and begins to approach Christ. Christ draws him and he draws Christ. And when, when his wife does the same thing, guess what happens? As each of them goes closer to God, look what happens to their own relationship. It will draw them closer together than they ever could have achieved on their own. The best thing you could ever do for your marriage is to draw closer to God. Let me tell you one of the reasons that's important from personal experience and from a pastor's perspective. When you give yourself fully to God and you try to make Him number one in your priorities, what happens is it begins to offset some of our selfishness. And selfishness, my friends, is the cancer to every marriage. It's actually the key to every divorce. Show me a divorce where at the root of it, it's not some form of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is simply another name for sin, really. It's just another name for all that puts ourselves up in front of God and others. And it's the enemy of any marriage. And in contrast to that, the Word of God says in places like Ephesians, now in a marriage what you can do is you can actually, instead of fighting and clamoring for in your own way, you can submit to one another because we have reverence for Christ. If you both have reverence for Christ, you can come close enough together that it's safe to submit to one another. You're being filled with God in greater ways that changes you from the inside out till finally, guess what? You can get yourself out of the center of your focus. And only when you do that do you have hope of a long-term, healthy, really joyful, fruit-filled marriage. So we love God in order to get ourselves out of the center. Cain, from the Bible, one of the first children in Scripture, killed his brother, filled with self-pity and anger and jealousy. That's what happens in a relationship when we let selfishness just go. And the Bible says that same sin that was crouching at Cain's door, seeking to devour him, is crouching at the door of every marriage. So God says, when God says, put me first, it's not some sort of selfishness on his part. It's his deep love for us that knows if only when our eyes are on him, no longer on my own self-pity, my own self-absorption, my own self-problems, my own trying to convince you how bad I've got it and nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And instead of getting my eyes off of myself or, or, or getting my eyes off of my spouse and how many love handles she has, only then when I put my eyes on Christ do I have hope of becoming the kind of person who can taste the greater joys in life that he has for us so I can might have a shot at having a God-centered instead of a self-centered marriage. I believe this is what's behind 
the wisdom of Old Testament scriptures like Ecclesiastes 4. I was at a wedding this weekend. They shared this scripture together. Though one can be easily overpowered, and we all know that to be true in our lives, two can better defend themselves. But a cord of three strands, now that's, that's something you can easily break. And the cord of three strands becomes this beautiful picture of husband, wife, with God wrapped around in and through them to hold them strong. Jean and Nina Begley from Mountain here were a two-corded strand that got pulled apart. Let me share some of their story that they shared with some of us on staff. They had a childhood crush that uh, became a friendship, and they eventually uh, had a child, got married, and then uh, after the marriage, things went south. Um, They had anger and arguing and division and hurt brokenness and shattered visions and they couldn't figure out what was going what was the problem eventually a fairly major deep-rooted problem was surfaced and uh, and Nina and the children separated from her husband Jean and the process they lost the house and there was devastation and it was a a long ugly uh, road that they were on which led eventually to divorce even in the midst of it God began to work on both their hearts to do a healing work and also to begin steering them to submit to God in a way that convinced each of them they needed to reconcile with each other. They enrolled in a group experience we do here. It's a class, it's a group, whatever you want to call it. It's called Marriage Oneness and they joined in the fall of 2014. Over 150 couples have gone through this class now and It's get raised reviews from those who are healthy and those who are in a position like these guys were. Uh, It says, uh, we just couldn't ignore the fact that God had to take out some trash, that's for sure. It had spilled over into our relationship, but now we could feel God was drawing us nearer to Him. And through a long process of God working with them through that course and the other people in it, in the middle of that marriage oneness, she says, my ex-husband proposed to me Right after church one day, over at the Bel Air campus, Pastor Nathan did the honor of praying over us and taking part in that surprise. And then eventually, my months later, my husband, my ex-husband and I became husband and wife for the second time. Marriage oneness opened our eyes to how to communicate better, how to share some of our fears and our likes and be honest no matter what. We learned to place our marriage in the right perspective by placing God in the center at all times. It was also good to experience that we were not alone and every marriage has trials and what matters is how you handle them and we have committed now to following God together. That's awesome. And and, uh, I don't know, did we show a picture yet of them? I want you to see this family and just see the smile on their face. I think we already showed it so I'm I'm glad you can see them because they're real people with a real story. It's not a gimmick. It's not a sermon. It's not a, a little quick tip. What it was was them altering the priorities of their life, putting their marriage first in all human relationships and then God first among everything. We're going to run that marriage oneness thing again this fall and uh, it might be for you a place to grow your marriage. If you have a healthy marriage and want to make it better, you have a marriage that you think could be stronger in any way, uh, it's a great idea for you and it's a lot of fun and uh, you'll grow in communication and uh, work on everything from spiritual beliefs, sexual intimacy and all that. It's a mid-sized group and you can sign up soon, anytime. Uh, you can stop by our Welcome Center today to find out more information, go to the website. Or if you want to help mentor or play a role in helping others do that, we'd love to hear from you. Stop by and let us know about that. 
I would just say before we move off of this priority thing, I, I don't want it to be missed here. It's sort of obvious, but I don't want it to be missed. Uh, some of you perhaps have, have not yet placed Christ as the primary relationship in your life. You've maybe been flirting with it or coming to church or whatever, but if you've not yet placed Christ at the center of your life, I'm going to invite you to do that. You can do that today at the end of our service. You can do it right now as you're sitting there just to say, this is it, this is my moment. You know, the early Christians, when they expressed their faith in Jesus, what they did is they, um, they expressed it through baptism. June 14th, we're having a baptism splash. It means we put a pool up in the water here at Mountain Road Campus, and anybody who wants to get baptized, you come on, and we'll get in the water together, and we'll observe that beautiful Christian practice. And if that's you, sign up or just show up, and we'll welcome you that day. June 14th, 4 p.m., some of you need to get here with your swimsuits and shorts and t-shirts, and we'll get in the water together. So you can take a step toward Jesus. That's the best thing I can recommend. If you're married, if you're a Christian, or an unbeliever, take a step toward Jesus. Let me, let me share with you um, the other love handle to hold on to today. The other thing to kind of get a grip on. We've talked about some priorities that's so counter to what we're being told. Here's the other thing that's counter to what we're being told. And it's about the promises of marriage. The promises of marriage. The essence of of marriage at the end from the biblical view is a promise. That's what it really boils down to. When you, when you talk about marriage today, you know, we don't think of it being promises, but that's really what it is. Hey, can we just do something fun at all the campuses if you're hearing me right now? So let's do something fun. If you've been married over 25 years, can you stand up right now? Just stand up. If you've been married over 25 years, stand up. There you go. If you've been married over 30 years, stand up. If you've been married over 30 years, stand up. Okay, the rest of you sit down. I'm confused. I did this backwards. The rest of you sit down. If you've been married over 35 years, stand up. Keep standing. If you've been married over 40 years, keep standing. If you've been married over 50 years, keep standing. Let's go one more. If you've been married over 55 years. 55? Anybody? God bless you. That's awesome. I know that guy, that's his sixth wife, so he adds them up, I guess, but... You know, the reason we applaud is because there's something in us that knows that's right, that's good, I want that. And a lot of us are like, man, that wasn't my story, but I'm happy for you because the essence of marriage is a promise and it's an amazing thing when God somehow takes feeble little people like us with, with imperfections and enables us to make good on a promise that we could never keep on our own. And that's what marriage is. It lets us touch something divine and holy that we can't do on our own. If we, if we think about what is the love that defines marriage today, you listen to the songs, you watch the movies, you ask people on the street, what they're going to tell you is they're going to say, well, love for marriage, it works. They'd say things, they'd use these kind of words. Like, you've got to have a romantic spark. You've got to have attraction. You've got to have compatibility. You've got to have sexual chemistry. You've got to connect somehow personality-wise. And the Bible to all of that says, sure, yes, yes, yes. Lots of it. Good luck. I hope you have it. But the Bible also wants to say those aren't the words that matter the most in terms of really fulfilling what marriage can and must be for all of us. The words that matter the most are words like promise, commitment, vow, and faithfulness. A vow and a commitment and a love that says I will be glued to you 
a vow that is more powerful than the feeling of love that I might feel at this moment. This, this affection I feel for you, I know I may not always feel for you. The essence of marriage is a promise. When two people stand in front of one another, Keller, Tim Keller says that it's not a matter of saying how you feel now. How you feel now has nothing to do with it. When you stand before someone and say, I will marry you, you're not talking about how you feel now. You're talking about what you will do later. Five years from now. You're making an appointment with yourself ten years from now and saying, guess what? Turn the calendar page ten years from now, I'll still be here. God willing, creek don't rise, I'm right here. In the Hebrew, there's a word for love, ahava, which means it's a decision of the will. It's a kind of love that's an action. It's not just a touchy-feely, cupidian kind of oh, fluttery feeling. It's a decision of your will that says, I see your love handles. I see your imperfections. I see you're a little bit crazy. And guess what? I still choose to be with you and love you and value you. And when you say, when two people come and say that to each other, that's called a vow or an oath or a promise or a pledge or a commitment. And it's more important than passion. It's more important than sexual chemistry. It's more important than romance. It's more important than financial security. It's more important than compatibility. It's more important than being able to communicate well. It's called commitment, an unwavering way. And we're still married today, not because I know, I know, I mean, you probably think it'd be really easy to be married to me. Tall, dark, handsome, hunk, spiritual giant that I am. But... Our life is no Disney movie and neither is yours and the thing that can hold us together is a promise and the beautiful thing is in marriage you get outside of a contract you get into a covenant. That's what we're talking about with promises. We get contracts for everything else. Like my cell phone, it's like, I can't wait to get out of this. I've got to get a Samsung, got to get out of this iPhone or whatever. We want to get out of it. How, when can I move from my apartment? As soon as I can, I'm out. Moving out. But I can't move for six more months but when the contract says I can, I'm out. And you know what? A covenant is different than that. A covenant isn't driven by contract. It says, I'm giving myself to you. And God comes and adds to a covenant and says, I will help you in this. Co contract says, you do what you say you're going to do. I'll say what I'm going to do. If one of us breaks it or I think you did, I'm out. And we're all free. But covenant says, for better or worse. Think about that. Here I'm going to tell you what. If you haven't been married before, you know when you say for better or worse, I can promise you, it's going to be worse. It'll also be better. But you're saying either way. You're saying this could go bad. This could go terribly wrong. We could get sick, we could lose everything, we could be eat ramen noodles every day for dinner. That's all we got. And I'm still here. Those are covenant promises. Better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, health, as long as we both shall live. Wow. William Bennett, former Secretary of Education, said he went to a wedding where the bride and the groom pledged to remain together and they changed the vows. Instead of as long as we both shall live, they changed it to as long as we both shall love. He said, I gave him paper plates for a wedding gift. Are you kidding me? As long as we both shall love, it's like, how about tomorrow? Good grief. Marriage has peaks and valleys, but a lot of it exists on the planes of commitment. So a covenant love, I promise you love, I love you Ahava style, chesed style, steadfast love of the Lord style, says I don't love you because you make me happy or I think you're so cute or as long as you make me feel good or we have that chemistry and mojo going or you make me laugh, or I'm excited every moment with you. It says, for better or for worse, when we're trudging up a hill we never saw coming. That's a covenant promise. And none of us can keep that on our own because we have so many love handles and imperfections and we're driven by selfishness. But God, as we put our priorities right, can draw us 
up in our strength to help us do what we could not do on our own. And that's what God promises to do when He comes and makes out of your feeble love into something that you can't make your own, and that's marriage. Matt Chandler says, After I was diagnosed with brain cancer and had the tumor removed from my right frontal lobe and began 18 months of high-dose chemotherapy, there was a two-year run when everything that was sexy about me was gone. My energy levels, my playfulness, my hard work, those were things that my wife Lauren was drawn to me about. She valued and loved those things in me, and they were all now gone. I was using my only strength to pull myself back up to the toilet to vomit again through the sores in my mouth. And Lauren stayed. She didn't say, oh, I'm a beautiful woman. I didn't deserve this. I didn't sign up for this. I'm not going to sit here and waste my life watching him die. She could have bailed. But she leaned instead into the covenant. When I was no help to her, couldn't do much of anything for her on a weekly basis. I was not romantic. I was gross. I was bald. I didn't look attractive. I was a shell of a man. And there she was. And the covenant held us. Friends, I submit to you that's a far more beautiful picture of everlasting love than anything Hollywood would tend to sell us about emotions and attractions and sexual energy. That's the staying power demonstrated through Christ Himself. Maybe you've heard of the famous surgeon Richard Seltzer. He had to cut into the face of a lovely young woman to remove a large tumor from her face. And he did the best he could, but in the course of surgery, he had to cut a little twig of a nerve that controlled many of the muscles in her mouth. And it left this woman whose face was previously this most beautiful thing to behold. The kind of face that would leave you to look and say, wow, she's a beautiful face. It left it rather grotesquely disfigured in an awkward position, drooping on one side and contorted a bit. After surgery, he came in and her young husband was beside her in the hospital bed, holding her hand and generously, lovingly gazing at her. She asked for a mirror and he gave her one. She looked in it and said, Will my face always look like this? And the doctor said, Yes, it will. We had to cut a nerve in the surgery. She just nodded silently. And her husband spoke up. And he said, well, I kind of like it. In fact, I think it's kind of cute. And then to make his point, he bent down to gently kiss her crooked mouth. And the doctor wrote, I'm so close that I could see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. That's a picture of what love does. Bending and bowing and contorting oneself to overcome the flaws and imperfections in another who is doing the same for you. It's the love I'm called to for Carla, my wife. It's what every married person in this place is called to. And it's impossible, but God, by His grace, enables us. And here's the good news I want to end with. You know, whoever you are, married or not, old or young, failures or whatever, 
Every single one of us has a soulmate like that woman in the bed that day. And his name is Jesus, who has bent and contorted himself in a grotesquely disfigured way on a cross to prove his love for you, to show that God's love, God's kiss for us still works. What a beautiful, beautiful expression of love. What a beautiful, beautiful way of saying it's beyond sentimentality, but it's commitment, it's a vow, it's a priority he has upon us, and it's a promise. He says, I will be there with you always. I pray you will receive the love of Christ and let it fill you and enhance all of your relationships. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. We need the tender kiss from Jesus. And our imperfections require him to contort himself so much and we thank you that he has done so on the cross. Thank you for his love and now we receive it in the name of our Lord. Amen.